when it comes to human beings, there are many different kinds of legs. Right? Many different kinds of legs. Short legs, long legs. Weak legs, strong legs. Hairy legs, smooth legs. Fat legs, skinny legs, brown legs, black legs, white legs, young legs, old legs. And I could get really Susian and keep going on and on, couldn't I? We could talk also about legs that have been altered by disease or injury. Legs without a foot. Legs with nothing below the knee. Legs with bum knees. Legs with muscular dystrophy. Legs suffering from some vascular disease. Prosthetic legs. And throughout the Caribbean, about 300 years ago, peg legs. Peg legs. But all of these differences don't change the fact that God designed the human leg. God designed the human leg and every other kind of leg for that matter. And he designed our legs to function a certain way. Some of the differences between our legs don't really affect how they function, right? But some do, and, and when that's the case, that impairment can be incredibly difficult. Anyone ever sprained their ankle, right? Anyone ever had a leg injury that put you on crutches or put you in a wheelchair or whatever it was, or you're feeling it right now because those legs are just giving out, they're not working the right way? You know what I'm talking about then. But such instances of impairment should inspire understanding and support from others, right? Rather than strange or condescending looks. Now, even though most people would agree with these observations about legs, sometimes different reasoning is used when it comes to the human family. The human family. And there are many different kinds of families, right? Of course there are. But, but that doesn't change the fact that God designed the human family. And he designed it to function a certain way. Where can we learn more about this design of his? Colossians 3. It just so happens that you're there in your Bibles. Wow. What a coinkydink. Okay, look at Colossians 3 with me, verses 18 through 21. This book that you have before you is actually a letter. Many of you know that. It's a letter sent to chapter 1, verse 2, Colossae, a city called Colossae. It was a city located, interestingly, about 120 miles east of the city of Ephesus, there in the Lycus River Valley of what is today western, kind of central Turkey. Interestingly, there were two other cities in this same river valley, and they are mentioned in this letter as well in chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, we know one of the names of those cities, many of you are familiar. Those cities were the city of Laodicea, Laodicea, pop, uh, well known, of course, from uh, Revelation chapter 3, and the city of Hierapolis, Laodicea and Hierapolis. So, what do we learn here about family? Colossians 3. This is what the Apostle Paul told followers of Jesus living in the city of Colossae. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, 
Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, obviously, Paul is speaking here to the members of a first century household. In verses 22 through 25, if you look forward uh, beyond where I just read, you will see that he also addresses the servants who are in that household, if a household had servants. But this morning, we're going to focus on the four family members, we could call them family roles that Paul highlights here. Wives, husbands, children, and fathers or parents. Both are mentioned here. This group has been called in more recent times by sociologists, the nuclear family. The nuclear family. That's not because we glow with kind of a a radiated hue. Uh, It has to do with the idea of of a kernel, uh, of a basic unit of something. And in fact, as you think about societies throughout all time and space, right, human societies... The family is the most basic social unit. The most basic social unit. That includes a woman, a man, and their offspring. A man, a woman, and their offspring. And as you would expect with this most basic of social units, the nuclear family is in fact found all over the world, throughout cultures, throughout history. And Paul's instructions here in chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, what we just heard from God's word, he affirms that reality, doesn't he? He doesn't address grandparents here. He, does, he doesn't speak to aunts and uncles. He, he doesn't provide guidance for some other group of adults, of caretakers, caregivers. He speaks to wives, husbands, children, and fathers or parents. A woman, a man, and their offspring. This is the basic unit of the family that we find reflected all throughout the biblical record. And it isn't simply a reflection of the ancient culture. Some might say that. Well, this is just reflecting how it was back then in those days. No, we know in the opening chapters of the Old Testament... God does three things. He creates human beings as male and female. Number two, he calls them to be fruitful and multiply. We know that means sexual reproduction. And number three, he establishes marriage as the context in which that multiplication takes place. We see that in both chapters one and two of Genesis. This is God's design. We don't have to be ashamed of it. We don't have to be embarrassed by it. We don't have to keep our mouths closed about it. Now, to be clear, just like human legs, human families all over the world and throughout history have also looked different at times. We know this. Death. Divorce. Dysfunction and a variety of other factors can alter the look of any given family. Some of those factors 
are beyond our control. Some of those reflect less than ideal, but nevertheless necessary choices. And some are purely expressions of human selfishness. Some are purely expressions of human deception and or human hubris, that is, the desire to alter God's design because we believe that we simply know better than God. Whatever a family, whatever your family looks like, God's call is that we would let His design be our guiding light when it comes to family healthiness. His desire is that each of us does what we are able to do, given our circumstances. Whatever your family looks like, that you would turn and your North Star would be His design. And to be able to bring yourself into conformity to the point that you can to the extent that you can with what he has revealed in his precious and holy word. These principles that we find touched on in verses 18 through 21 of chapter 3. So let's do this. Let's talk about those principles together. And in order to do that, this morning let's consider first of all the context here and then the specific commands. Context then commands. Context, then commands. The commands we discover in these verses. So, let's talk about context. When we talk about the context, we're not only talking about what came right before these verses, or what came right after the, these verses. We are talking about that. That's what we call the immediate context. But we're also thinking about the major themes that we find throughout this letter. When we think about the letter as a whole, it's almost impossible. Now, I'm, I'm speaking to many of you who have already read last week. You read through, right, this, you read through this book, at least the first three chapters of this book. So when you did that, I hope this is true, uh, when you did that, and if you did do that, then it's almost impossible to miss the singular emphasis that dominates the first half of this book. That is chapters 1 and 2. That emphasis is Christ. Jesus Christ. You can't miss it, right? If you have a pulse, there's no way that you can miss it if you're reading that book. Let me look, show you some verses here to kind of kind of uh, sculpt this out a little bit and highlight what Paul was talking about here. Uh, Paul begins the book by confirming for them that he and his team always, always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's what excited Paul. You see, Paul didn't plant this church, unlike so many of the letters that he wrote Unlike so many chapters in the book of Acts devoted to chronicling his ministry, he did not plant this church. A brother named Epaphras planted this church. We don't know the relationship necessarily between him and Epaphras, although Epaphras was there, I think, in Rome with Paul when he's writing this letter. But Epaphras was the one. And so as Epaphras brought news of a new group 
of disciples in Colossae, Paul and his team were thrilled to hear about what God was doing. He thanked God for their faith in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. He goes on, starting in verse 115, to paint this astounding picture of the greatness of Christ and God's plan that, take a look, 118, in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. That means that Jesus might have first place in everything. Paul's plan, Paul's own plan, flows from God's plan and Christ's greatness. Chapter 1, verse 28, him we proclaim, Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature or complete in Christ. That's the whole aim of of his ministry. In chapter 2, Paul declares that Jesus Christ... Chapter 2, verse 3, in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Holy moly, wow. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Christ that we have been filled in him. Take a look at 2.10. We have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In light of this, we should not get distracted, brothers and sisters, by practices earthly practices or religious practices that are a shadow of the things to come for the substance belongs to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 17. Instead, now look in your Bibles at chapter 3, verse 1. I know you're in chapter 3, so look up to verse 1. Instead, what should we do? Instead of looking to those shadowy practices that that are devoid of the substance that belongs to Christ. Instead, chapter 3, verse 1, if we have been raised with Christ, we should seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Amen? Yeah. What does that mean practically for each of us? It means, look at verse 9, chapter 3, verse 9, it means that we should put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge After the image of its creator. What does this new self look like? Well, look at 312. It means being a people defined by compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. More broadly, drop down to verse 17. It means that in whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean that, oh, oh, okay, I'm stepping up in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm going behind the curtain in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'd like to buy these lottery tickets in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's not something like that. It means devoting yourself in every aspect of your life to serving Christ. To seeking his will. Seeking to glorify him in all those ways, right? That if if by chance it's possible by God's grace, the name of the Lord Jesus would be magnified in your life. The way you conduct your life. Paul's emphasis, how do we summarize all this? (laughs) I just flew through three chapters, three and a half chapters of material. How do we summarize this? What is Paul's emphasis here that helps us understand the context of this book? 
Well, Paul's emphasis in everything that came before this passage, I think we could summarize it this way. Take a look. Paul is decidedly focused on the importance of both our Redeemer and the redeemed life. Our Redeemer and the redeemed life. Now, it is so important that you hold on to that. Hold on to that truth about the context. Because everything before this, that's come before this, is about the Redeemer and our redeemed life because of our Redeemer. So, with that context in mind, let's look at these household directives, these family commands that Paul has provided here in verses 18 through 21. The first thing you might have noticed about these instructions is just how simple and straightforward they are. Simple and straightforward. Paul, of course, could talk at length. We know one time he, he talked so long that somebody fell asleep and fell out of a window, right? I'm like trying to achieve that success as a preacher. That's like one of my goals is that, yeah, I could be at a place where somebody, you know, would just fall asleep after, you know, umpteen hours of preaching. We know Paul could talk at length about God's design for husbands and wives. He could talk at length about the God's, God's profound mystery in marriage. The power of God at work in that. He could talk at length about the instruction of children. What it means to raise them and, and the fear and the discipline of the Lord. He could talk at length about Christ-centered parenting. But his encouragements here are terse. To the point, aren't they? Why is that? Why are they so short? Well, I think one of the reasons may be that he had limited space. He's not writing a novel here. He's writing a letter. And he wants to focus on what he knew were the pressing issues within the church at Colossae. So he's hit those. He's already touched on those. Uh, but I think another reason may be that these believers, he knew from Epaphras, had already been instructed to some level, to some extent, about what it would mean to be a follower of Christ, what it looks like to glorify Christ in every area of your life. So part of that's probably behind the scenes here. But I also think in providing these simple reminders, Paul is encouraging each family member to keep the main thing, the main thing. If he had one word to say to each of these family members, I think this is what he would say, what we have right here. Keeping the main thing, the main thing. So let's briefly touch on those main things. First of all, wives are called to submit to their husbands. In the Roman world, some of Paul's readers might have been more used to the word obey in this context than the word submit. Why did Paul use submit rather than obey? Well, one of the reasons is because this idea of submission was familiar to all Christians. And it was deeply grounded in God's design for our world. The idea of submission. For example, in addition to submission, a call of submission to our Heavenly Father. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. You are called to submit. I am called to submit before our Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us, who's given us life, right? In addition to submitting to God, believers are called to be submissive or subject to the governing authorities that God has instituted in our civil society 
Romans 13.1, Titus 3.1, 1 Peter 2.13, but also in the church. 1 Corinthians 16.16, 1 Peter 5.5. All those verses I just gave you use the same exact verb that we find here. So God has called Christians to be a submissive people. He has called every single one of us to be a people who submit. This is why Paul speaks in verse 18 about what is fitting in the Lord. This is fitting in the Lord. Why is this so fitting? Because God has designed spheres of authority, responsibility, and accountability. He has designed these spheres of, these spheres of authority, responsibility, and accountability in our world for the purpose of realizing some kind of order that promotes human flourishing. That's why these things exist. That's why God's created them. And this design extends to the home where the husband is placed in this position of authority, responsibility, and accountability. Of course, whether it's in the civil society or the church or your workplace or at home, that position does not signify superiority. It doesn't. Your boss at work is not better than you. Our elected officials are not better than us. Wife, your husband is not better than you. That's not what this signifies. No. Again, all th this is God's design for us in this world. These spheres of authority, responsibility, and accountability. The question is, do we, tr do we trust that God has provided these for our good? Do we trust that his design is good? Are we informed by his design as we think about being a people who submit to God? You see, that's part of the foundation for the call to the Christian wife. This idea of submission. Again, all Christians are called to submit in various ways, and this includes wives to their husband's leadership. Second, these husbands, as we see here in verse 19, these leaders are not called in verse 19 to rule well. They're not called to lead wisely. They should. Uh, they're not called here to manage mercifully, that manage their homes. What are they called to do? They're called to love their wives. Again, this would have caught the readers off guard if they would have seen this. They're called to love their wives. Uh, only a few verses earlier, the apostle called every... Again, we're talking about uh, submission being a Christian thing. Well, we know love is a Christian thing, isn't it? These are practices, these are virtues, submission and love that we're all involved with. We're all involved with because we see in chapter 3, verse 14. Look at what it says. And above all, these put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In light of the teaching we find in the letters of the New Testament, undoubtedly these disciples in Colossae, they already understood the importance of love. They would have known about the importance of love in the Christian life. That every area of their life was to be a, a reflection of the love of God in Christ working itself out through them. 
the love that we've received and the love that we are called to practice. For, so for these husbands, it was critical that they, as a matter of first importance, apply that truth to their marriages as well. Their marriage somehow was not the only area of their life that was disconnected, right, from this idea of love, the primacy of love. No, they needed to apply it especially well in their marriages. As we see in verse 19, this was especially important, this teaching, in light of that sinful default obvious in so many men. What is that sinful default? Love your wife, says Paul, and do not be harsh with them. I think Paul knows something about men, doesn't he? We're going to see that coming up again, what he knows about men. Brothers and sisters, friends, what a sad distortion when it comes to leadership. Our tendency, that tendency to be harsh with those who are entrusted to our care. What a sad distortion, as if harshness could really create the kind of health and flourishing that we want to see in our relationships. Paul warns husbands about this. But that's exactly what sin does, right? It distorts. It distorts the truth. It distorts love. As Paul makes clear here, to be a leader in the home is to be a man of love. Third, Paul presents in verse 20 another sphere of authority. Here's another sphere of authority, responsibility, and accountability. Do you see it? This time it's related to children and their parents. Children, obey. There's the word now. Obey your parents in everything. Now, I think Paul is speaking there not to adult children, but to the children who actually live within the household. Those who are under the parents' authority, under their nurture. So while we know that obeying, (laughs) obeying one's parents is a universal struggle for kids (laughs) around the world. I think every parent, if we could do a poll right now, would tell you that uh, no matter the culture, no matter what language is spoken, uh, every child struggles in different ways at different times to different degrees with actually listening and obeying their parents. Now, while that's true, Paul may have been correcting here some misguided thinking that he encountered along the way. He certainly saw this with different adults, this idea that being free in Christ was somehow freedom to do whatever you wanted to do. We know that's not what God's word teaches us. And if children got a hold of this, they might think, well, we're a Christian family now. <laughs> we were a pagan family, now we're a Christian family. And we can, I, I'm free in Christ to do whatever I want. No, no, no. Paul says, no, 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 no. This is not what God wants. To obey one's parents was the true mark of spiritual health. You want to know if you're healthy as a child spiritually? Then verse 19 uh, tells us that this pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord for children to honor their mother and their father, to listen to them. Finally, after mentioning parents in verse 20, we find one more qualifier or corrective in verse 21. He's talked about children obeying their parents, but like we had in verse 19, that corrective in verse 19, this one in verse 21 also speaks to the reality of the leadership temptations 
a man will face. If God has called a man to lead his family, then that leadership should not be characterized by a provoking and aggravating and antagonizing spirit. Just as men can default to harshness with their wives when things are not going the man's way, right? They can default to that. That same harshness can also be directed at their kids. It's because I told you to do it the right way, and you're not doing it. Because you're not listening to me. Bam, 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 bam. And we think that by yelling and stomping our foot, by screaming, by pressuring, by belittling, by demeaning, by becoming physically large and intimidating, that we're accomplishing our mission as fathers. That things will work out in a healthy way. Friends, the Apostle Paul couldn't disagree with you more. He tells you, do not antagonize your children, fathers. Do not exasperate your children by riding them. You, you seem to think that you're teaching them some kind of discipline or value when you're riding, 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 riding them. Guess what you're doing? You're breaking them. You're bringing them to, verse 21, you're bringing them to a place of discouragement. Or at least that's a very real possibility that every father has to be on the lookout for. If I'm, is my sternness in this situation necessary, but is my sternness flowing over into harshness? Is this time where I need to stand my ground and be, be tough with a kid who's not listening, who's stubborn? Is it turning into a, an, an antagonistic environment? Am I ex exasperating that child? Now, we've just touched on these, these four categories briefly, but having looked at each command, think with me about how the context should inform our understanding here. How does the context lead us to this place? Because I'll tell you what, people are often very tempted to grab these verses and just pull them right out of the context and like run around with them. Woo! Listen to this, listen to this. Are you doing this? Listen to this. Are you doing this? Listen to this. In your face. No, 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 no. The context. What does the context tell us about this? Well, for example, thinking about the context here, we know it's abundantly clear in this passage that Paul knows he's writing to Christians who, like the rest of us, struggle with sin. He wouldn't say what he said in these verses if he didn't know that they were struggling or were, were likely to struggle in these areas. To be tempted, tempted to be what? Tempted to be that domineering wife. Tempted to be that harsh husband. Tempted to be an unruly child. Everyone trying to get their way. Everyone trying to push their agenda. Everyone putting me before others. Paul understood this. He knew that's who he was writing to. Why is it important to note that he was writing to Christians who are struggling with sin? Because as sinners, we know that our only hope is our Redeemer and the redeemed life. 
That's the context. Our Redeemer and the redeemed life. Let me ask you this. Take a look at the screen. Do you understand what Christ's redemption means for your marriage and family? Do you understand that? Have you taken time to consider that carefully? Have you taken time to prayerfully go over that? I'm not asking if you can just recite to me verses about marriage and family. I'm asking you about how you have committed and purposed within your heart to honor Jesus as a husband, to honor Jesus as a wife, to honor Jesus as a father and a mother. Is it your desire to bring every area of your life under the lordship of Christ or are you holding things back? I will honor you, Lord, in 90% of my life. But just give me this 10%, please. I'm just going to put this 10% behind this door and, and it'll just be, you know, just, you know. Nine, Lord, 90, come on, that's good. I mean, like, wow. You, I know you're glorified by that 90%. That's like the overwhelming majority. That's not how it works with, with the maker of heaven and earth. That's not how it works with Lord God Almighty who made you in his image. He deserves 100% of you, your life, everything. And he knows what's best for you in every area of your life, including your marriage, including your family. And he knows that you're going to be attacked by the culture, every culture, throughout time and space, full of sinners who in some way, one way or another, is going to be attacking this design of family. It's a given. Even in those cultures, when it looked like on the outside that this was happening, guess what? It was ugly underneath. So often. It was a form of godliness, but so many denied the power thereof, as the word said. What drove it along? Do you understand what Christ's redemption means for your marriage and family? You see, the directives Paul details here, verses 18 through 21, are not simply a call to submission, love, obedience, and gracious nurture. No, this is a call to gospel-inspired submission, to gospel-inspired love, to gospel-inspired obedience, to gospel-inspired nurture. That's what the context tells us. What does gospel inspire means? It means a Jesus motivating, a Jesus imitating, and a Jesus empowered perspective on your marriage and your family. We have gospel connectors right here in the passage. Did you see them? Phrases like, as is fitting in the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. As is fitting in the Lord. He's talking to people who care about what's fitting in the Lord, doesn't he? Look at the other gospel connector. For this pleases the Lord, says Paul. That's the Lord Jesus. That's the Lord Jesus. It pleases the Lord, children, when you obey your parents. In the companion letter to Colossians, the book of Ephesians, we can tell they were written right around the same time because they have a lot of, uh, Paul is thinking and meditating on a lot of similar themes and he feels like these churches really needed to hear. Uh, he, he adapts, he applies some of the things a little bit differently given the specific situations in each of these churches. But we can tell that they have a lot of the uh, same material, uh, a, lot of, a lot of similarities there. 
In Ephesians, Paul, for whatever reason, spends more time unpacking uh, what is, in many cases, assumed here in Colossians in light of the context. Maybe in Ephesus, they needed, they needed it worked out a little bit more for them. They needed it spelled out. They needed it to be drawn out. Paul really applying some of the things that he was saying here. But we have in Ephesians amazing reminders of the gospel connection and gospel context of this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 24 through 25, we read that as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. How do we submit to Christ? How do you submit to Christ? We do so in humility with love and joy. Isn't that true? Do we submit to Christ begrudgingly? Saying, how dare you try to have it over me? How dare you try to tell me what to do? Lord Jesus, don't you think I know what's going on? Don't you think I have my own ideas? Don't you think I know the way? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not how we submit to the Lord. We also don't submit to the Lord because he's the Lord. We go, oh, oh, I'm mumbling under my breath that I have to follow Jesus. King of kings, Lord of lords. He's always getting his way. Son of God, exalted the right hand of God. We're not doing that, are we? With great humility, with love and joy, we say, I trust you, Lord Jesus, that you have my best interest in mind. And I gladly serve you. I gladly submit to you. Trust for your purposes to be worked out. How beautiful when a Christian wife can trust a husband who loves her like Christ. She can trust him and say, I trust in God's design for this. And I joyfully want to bless and encourage my husband in that sphere of authority, responsibility, accountability that God has put him in. For my good and for the good of our family, I want to do that. Just as I do with the church leaders, just as I do with the civic leaders, just as I do ultimately with God himself. You see, that's a gospel-inspired heart that's motivating that woman. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, take a look, it's right there. He says something very similar to the, to the men. We also read, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wow. That's a suffering, sacrificial love, isn't it? It's a love that's willing to take the hits for the good of the one that we love. A, good, a, a, a love that's willing to sacrifice, to lay it all on the line, to be that blessing to the wife, to the family. Boy, I hope that you trust that as you submit to the shepherds that God has put in this church, that you believe that we will put it on the line for you, that we, we want to sacrificially love you, that we'll bend over backwards to care for you, that we have your best interest at heart. And, and though we're human, of course, the, the, the shadow over all of this is that wives fail, husbands fail, church leaders fail, right? Civic leaders fail. All of us fail because we're sinners. We understand that. That's why the gospel is so good for us. But I hope that, that you trust that, that we love you like this as shepherds in this body. Because we want you to be able to joyfully submit to the position God has put us in to care for you for the good of our church. And we hope to do that in our society, right? 
We hope to do that in our society as well, or at our workplace. What did Paul tell in Colossians? You're going to go on to see this. Well, actually, at the end, you read it at the end of chapter 3. What does he go on to say to the servants of these households? He says, I want you to serve your masters as if you are serving Jesus because you are. You're serving Jesus in your job. You're glorifying Jesus in your job. You look at that boss and say, I'm going to see that boss as Jesus, and I'm going to devote myself to serving and blessing him just as if he were Jesus. Because it's, it then, it, what does it inspire? A, a posture of humility and love and joy in our jobs. Love and joy. Even with a harsh boss, 1 Peter chapter 2, when you have a harsh master, what do you do? Well, we can follow in Jesus' footsteps. We testify of him, of him in that way, don't we? You see, this is all gospel-inspired. These are the examples that I'm providing for you. So brothers and sisters, friends, no matter what your family looks like, every family works best when it works according to God's design. Do you believe that? Though all of us are guilty in the family failures department, there is hope in light of the gospel. My heart goes out to you if you're sitting here this morning and you are in the midst of a family failure. You're struggling. It's, you're, you're hurting. My heart goes out to you if you are listening this morning and you come from a background where family failure was the name of the game. That's what you grew up in. It was broken. It was dysfunctional. It was painful. You have scars to prove it. My heart goes out to you. If you're struggling now or you're struggling with what happened then, but know, please know, God has a design. And God gives us hope. And it begins with the fact that he is our loving and perfect Heavenly Father. He wants to make you part of his family. That's where it starts. So this gospel hope that we have for our family failures is hope of forgiveness. But it's also the power, power to transform you. Power to transform your family. Ladies, that means power to submit with a heart of Jesus-like service to your husband. Remember him who got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples? Husbands, that means power to love with a heart of Jesus-like sacrifice. Your wife is not there to get you what you want, to fulfill your agenda and plan. You are there for her. You are there for her. And if it means it's costly, it's going to be costly. Children, that means power. The gospel brings us power to obey with a heart of Jesus-like submission. Mom, Dad, that's power to parent in light of your heavenly Father whom the gospel has reconciled you to. The Father who gave His only Son. Listen, there is so much we could talk about in this area. So much we could and should talk about in terms of what it means to be a godly wife or a godly husband or godly parents. And that's part of what we do as a church. Older women, teach the younger women. 
Titus chapter 2. Right? Men, be examples. Young men, look to, the, look to the elders. Look to your elders, small e, right? For that example. We learn from one another. So the very things that God is showing us here, we should continue to carry on with one another. If you are a wife who is struggling with this idea, struggling in a marriage where you've got a domineering husband, and you're thinking, submit to him? Really? Oh boy, he's way off track. Please talk to an older sister in Christ. Encourage one another in these things. These are not easy to apply. It takes a lot of wisdom to understand how to do this well. This is what the church is. This is not a, I'm not a university professor, right? I'm not just standing up here giving you information you take home. I'm a shepherd trying to guide the flock and the sheep have a role with one another. We as Christ's followers, as his sheep, we have a role with one another. So in life groups, talk about these things. Build from there into meetings over coffee or a, a dinner or whatever and talk about how do we live these things out and encourage one another in these things. There's only so much we can do here on a Sunday morning, but God has been so good to us to reveal this beautiful design and even better to reveal gospel hope. These conversations about verses 18 through 21, God's design for family, must be rooted in the gospel rather than popular concepts like traditional roles and family values. In a society like ours that is morally and relationally adrift, our mission as the church is not to lobby for these things. That is not our mission. God has not sent us to, to lobby for family values. No, he has called us. Our mission is to help people taste the goodness of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then, subsequently, the goodness of his design for marriage and family. I'm not making an overarching statement about you as a citizen and what you're involved with and active for. I'm talking about keeping first things first and being guarded to make sure that we, that we don't subscribe to the lie that family values will ultimately be accomplished somehow apart from the redeeming work of the gospel of Jesus. That's what our neighbors need. That's what our society needs. Critical change. And they need to see it reflected in us first. Some cases, it's the gospel-inspired family that points those around us to the gospel. It gets their attention, doesn't it? Why do you love your wife like that? Why do your kids trust you like that? Why are you leading them in that way that you are? You know our culture has questions. They're struggling. They're hurting. They need hope and they need help. Not just for us to give moralistic teaching on being a better wife, husband, or child, or parent. That, that could be good, but we've got to start with the gospel. Because that's where it starts for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Is your marriage, is your family growing in God's good design? I put that question to you. And if it is, praise God, give thanks, and press on, brother, 
sister, press on. If it is not, how might the good news about Jesus that you've heard this morning speak directly to your struggle? Wife, husband, parent, child. How does the good news speak directly to that struggle? How can we pray for you? How can we support you in that struggle? And if you are not married, if you are not a parent or child, you're, an, you're, you're not a, a, little, a little child, what can you do? You can pray. You can pray for the families and the marriages all around you. And you can prepare yourself if, in fact, God has someone for you, right? If, if you're ready to meet somebody, you're single, you want, you're wanting to marry, then this is the time to be educated in God's word about his good design and the engine, the fuel that fires that good design. Pray for the marriages and families around you. Whoever you are this morning, whatever your family looks like, let's rejoice together in God's good design for all of life. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me?